0: Please turn in your Bibles to the passage I read Luke chapter 2 and we're going to be looking at verses 41 to 52. A passage I'm sure you're quite familiar with. Some years ago when our children were small, we we lost one of them in a mall. And uh, it was terrifying as you parents will well understand. And uh, it ended well, but uh, that is, we got him back. <laughs> it ended well, and um, but I'll never forget the experience. Perhaps something similar happened uh, to you. Something similar happened to Joseph and Mary, and uh, they would have understood the feelings that we had. But the passage in front of us, verses 41 to 52, doesn't focus on them, and it doesn't focus on how they felt. It's not a lesson in parenting. No, like the rest of Scripture, it's about the Lord Jesus. And later on in the Gospel of Luke, we read that the Lord Jesus himself, as he explains to the two on the road to Emmaus, He talks to them from the whole of scriptures, and he explains to them how in all scripture, he is the focus. In all scripture, he explained the things concerning himself. And so that's our focus necessarily here in this passage, the things concerning Jesus. We want to learn what the passage tells us about Christ. And I'm going to give you at least three areas of consideration. His development, his purpose, and his example. We'll spend most of our time on his development, spend less time on his purpose, and even less on his example, but trust that all three considerations will be useful by the help of the Spirit so that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of our blessed Lord. So let me begin then with his development. In verse 42 we read, And when he was twelve... Now immediately we realize that this is a statement about the human nature of Jesus. You can't say this about God. You can't say, Now when God was twelve, he did this. You can't even say... When God was a million years old, can't say that about God, because God is. God is. You notice in the hymn we sang, I am. That's the name that's ascribed to God. God simply is. God was never young, and God will never get old. God simply is. So when we read, when he was 12... We know that we're talking about, and the scriptures are referring to, the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to think then about the development of the human nature of the Lord Jesus, and I want to try and explain that to you, and then we'll think about two, what I think are encouraging implications. Now, the Lord Jesus grew. He developed. matured and we read in verse 43 that the boy jesus stayed behind the word boy is used of jesus there earlier in verse 16 and verse 40 he is called first a baby and then he's called in verse 40 a little boy and now a different word is used and he's a boy And so you can see just in those references that Jesus is growing. And in fact, in verse 40, it says that he grew. And the same word is used with reference to John the Baptist in chapter 1 and verse 80. John the Baptist grew, and so we understand what that means. But the Lord Jesus grew as well. He matured. And he developed. And... uh, We see him in the temple here in this passage. And even though the teachers and the rulers were amazed at him, and rightly amazed at him, nonetheless, he was truly human. And he was a real little boy. And he grew and developed the way our children are growing and developing. And so when the Lord Jesus was three, he acted the way any ordinary three-year-old would act. And so young Silas is three this week, so you watch him after the service, you watch him running around and talking, and, and you think to yourself, now the Lord Jesus was just like that. How well, isn't that astonishing? I mean, that's astounding that God incarnate was as truly a little boy as that child that you watch after the service. What an astonishing reality that God did, that Jesus did, that God accomplished in order to redeem us. A true child, a true human. He was little, weak and helpless, tears and smiles like us he knew, and he feeleth for our sadness, and he shareth in our gladness. That's the Lord Jesus, fully human. Well, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus grew spiritually, uh, sorry, physically. He grew physically. In verse 52, it says that he grew in stature. And this certainly includes physical strength. And so here, Jesus is declared to grow physically, and to mature physically. And he grew in stamina. And he grew in strength. You know, when the Lord Jesus grew to be a man, he was a man of strength. And he was a man of stamina. And we know this when we we read the gospel records. Jesus walked everywhere. Maybe you... ...are reaching an age where you find it's difficult to walk... ...or you have physical issues such that it's difficult to walk. The Lord Jesus walked everywhere. You drove to church in comfort. I have a seat warmer in my car. Isn't that great? I drove here and I put the seat warmer on... ...because I'm cold. I'll be cold till June. And I put the seat warmer on and I was... ...it was comfortable. When Jesus went somewhere, he walked. No other options... And he walked when it was hot. And he walked when the road was rugged. And he walked when he went uphill. You always seem to go uphill if you go to Jerusalem. We always say in the Bible, the the Bible always says they go up to Jerusalem. So Jesus was walking uphill. Sometimes he's finished a a long day of ministry. And he goes up into the mountains. And he goes up into the hills to pray. He was a man of strength and stamina. The Lord Jesus had grown, and and here we see the beginning of that development. The Lord Jesus grew physically, and then he grew in knowledge. The Lord Jesus grew in knowledge. Look at verse um, 40, first of all, where it says, Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. The Jewish children were taught the Bible, the Old Testament, and they were taught passages, and they memorized passages of the scriptures. They didn't have their own copies of the Bible. Isn't it fabulous? These children have their own Bibles on their laps. They're sitting and they're looking and they're following. They didn't have those, these Jewish children, so they memorized, and they memorized so that they could always refer back they memorized so that they could recite and be influenced by all through their lives. And that would have been true of Jesus. Jesus was taught the scriptures and he memorized the scriptures. And we know, we read the gospels and we see his teaching. And he's always quoting or alluding to the scriptures. He knows the Bible like the back of his hand. And he says to the spiritual leaders, he says, you're in error not knowing the scriptures. So shame on them. What a privilege, then, if these children in this congregation are being taught the scriptures. You children should thank God that the Bible is being taught to you by your parents day in and day out. What a blessing that God has been so good to you, give you parents who will teach you the Bible. It's the word of God. And God has put you in a place, and he's placed you in a home, and he's given you a family where you'll be taught the Bible. And it's our prayer that God will use his word to save you. And even those of our children who have gone off and gone their own way and are in a strange country, the Bible has been placed in their minds and verses have been imprinted upon their brains and who knows, but that at some point God will use his word to save them. And that's our prayer. Well, the Lord Jesus knows the scriptures and is taught the scriptures from earliest days so he grows in knowledge and in wisdom. Now look at verse 46. He is in the temple and his parents find him in the temple and verse 46 says after three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. Oh that's wonderful. Jesus is in the temple and he's asking questions and he's listening to answers. What a rare reality that is. Asking questions. It's important to ask questions. For young and old, it's important to ask questions. And over the years, sometimes after the service, children will come to me. Sometimes with encouragement from parents and they'll and the children will ask questions. They say, we didn't understand this, Pastor. We have a question about this. Like, that's just the best thing in the whole. That makes my, my month It's fabulous. It's exciting to hear someone ask a question about the Bible. Tell me this about Jesus. Explain this about Jesus to me. Absolutely. Live and, live and breathe to be able to do that. It's important to ask questions. If you don't understand, ask somebody. Ask your parents. Come and ask me. Love to try and explain it to you. Ask questions. Jesus asked questions of them. And then notice that it says that he listened to the answers. He listened to the answers. My father used to always tell me he'd look at me and point at my ears, he'd say, Those ears are not ornamental. You, you should actually use them. Right? That's how you learn. Listen to the answers that are given to you. And so Jesus did, and he grew in grace. He grew in knowledge and in wisdom. And he learned. He learned truth about God. And he learned truth about life. It's evident from his ministry that the Lord Jesus not only knew about God and about uh, truth, but he knew about life. He knew about reality, he knew about Jewish culture. When you read uh, the Gospels and you read about the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that, that he was familiar with all areas of life. And he brought it into his teaching. And so often he used it to illustrate his teaching so that people could relate and people could understand. And truth would make clear to them as he used information from life to illustrate truth from heaven. When you read the Gospels, you read that Jesus talked about, about life in the home. He looked around and learned about life in the home. He knew something about baking. Jesus knew about baking. He knew about leaven. He knew about yeast. And he used this in his in his teaching as an illustration. The Lord Jesus knew about, about how to make do. You know, when you don't have a lot and you make do with things? He knew about that because he talked about making a patch to put on some on some cloth. so you patch things up? you can't buy new so you, you patch it up. Jesus illustrated in that way in Matthew 9:16. Jesus knew about village life. He knew the kinds of games that children played. He talked about being in the village and, and children are playing over there and they sing this song and they sing that song and he used that as an illustration in Luke chapter. Uh, sorry, in Luke Matthew chapter 11. And then in Luke chapter 13, we find that the Lord Jesus knew about what was going on in national life. It's good for Christians to know what's going on. The Lord Jesus knew about Pilate who would kill those people. He knew about what a wicked man Pilate was. The Lord Jesus knew about, about life, and he used that to illustrate his teaching about the truth. The Lord Jesus grew. He grew Intellectually, he grew in knowledge, and then also the Lord Jesus grew spiritually. He grew spiritually again, verse 40 and verse 52. There was spiritual development, he was perfect, but he grew. He was perfect, but Hebrews 5 8 says that he learned obedience. I don't know how to explain that, to be frank with you. I don't know how the Lord Jesus can grow spiritually. I don't really understand how you learn obedience when you're perfectly obedient. And I've had explanations given to me. And to be frank, I just sit back and my brain starts to hurt. And I just bow before the Lord and say, how the one Jesus who is fully God and fully man, learns obedience. I accept it because the Bible says it to explain it. It's a little bit beyond me. But what an amazing Savior we have. What a great Lord Jesus. He grew spiritually. He grew and he faced temptation. And learned obedience, and obeyed God, and refused to obey the devil. He faced all kinds of temptations, and triumphed over every one of them. Faced all kinds of temptations, the same kinds of temptations that that you and I face, and he he was obedient to God in every instance and in every circumstance. Absolutely astounding and astonishing. To so when. He was a child and when he was a young boy and when he was a boy on the verge of manhood as in this passage, bar mitzvah as it were on the horizon, he was absolutely spot on perfect. What an astounding being is this God man. Now Jesus must have been tempted as a child. He faced temptation that every child faces. All the temptations that that our children face, he would have faced. He would have faced the, the temptation to complain. I don't know if any children here complain about anything. But uh, the temptation would have come to the, to the Lord Jesus. He would have been tempted to be envious. You know what envious means? You You see something other people have and you realize you don't have it and then you become a little upset that they have it and you don't. And you envy them. Jesus would have faced that kind of temptation. Remember his family was poor. But he was obedient to God. He was righteous in his response to the temptation. Jesus would have played games, but he never cheated. Jesus would have known things, but he was never proud. The Lord Jesus was righteous, but he was never insufferable the way some of us might be. You know, when we're just really good and really righteous and we hope you notice... He was never like that. He was absolutely perfect. And there are all kinds of stories from what we call apocryphal gospels about how strange Jesus was as a child, but they're all lies. We talk about miracles he was supposed to have done just for his own pleasure or peevishness. They're all lies. What we read here is the truth. Jesus was fully human and absolutely perfectly righteous. He was a normal and perfect child. He was everything that a human being ought to be. We must never say when we think about a child and child is being bad and sinful and say, oh well, just being a boy. No, he's being a bad, fallen, totally depraved boy. That's what he's being. Jesus was perfect as every human being ought to be as we would have been without the fall, as we will be when we're in glory. He grew spiritually. Now, two quick implications that I think are very encouraging. And the first is this. But he's one of us. He's one of us. And we're not alone then as human beings. Jesus came amongst us and he's one of us. And as one of us, he's come to save us. And he can save us because he's one of us. He can save us because now he can be our representative before God. He can save us because now... He can take our place and bear our punishment and suffer the judgment we've earned because he's one of us. That's tremendously encouraging, then, that he is one of us. We're so thankful for that. And because he's one of us, he sympathizes with us. Because he's one of us, he can can understand what we go through. He understands our weakness. And he can sympathize with us in our weakness. And that's when we, when we go to him and we cry out to him in our distress and in our trouble. We call upon his name and we cry out to him. Well, he understands. He sympathizes. And then he gives us grace to help in our time of need. He was made like us that he might sympathize. With us, so he's one of us. And then a second implication is that he has compassion on us. He has compassion on us. You know, the Lord Jesus is not cold and indifferent. And you come in your trouble to him. You come in your weakness to him, and he cares. And you read in the Gospels that Jesus. He looks at people, he looks at the leper, and it says he has compassion on them. He looks at the crowd, they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. His heart is great and full of pity, he has compassion on them. He looks at the blind men, and the blind men come to him and they say, Lord, open our eyes. And it says his heart was moved with pity from deep within compassion and he helps them and he blesses them the Lord Jesus has the full range of human emotion you can see him and he's angry angry at sin and angry at death and angry at iniquity and you can see him at the graveside of Lazarus and it says that he is angry Not just weeping, he's weeping because he is so troubled at what sin and death has done to men. And he hears the cries, and he hears the wailing, and he sees the the devastation that sin has wrought. And he is moved, and he is troubled, and he's agitated because he cares. Because he loves these people, and he wants to help them. And he does, for he's able to, and he's willing to. And he came in order to. He has compassion on us. He's one of us. That's the development of Jesus. Now we move quickly to the the purpose. The purpose of Jesus. All Jewish males had to come to Jerusalem three times a year for the festivals, for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus now accompanies his parents uh, to pass over they would have traveled about hundred twenty eight kilometers walking assuming that they bypassed samaria because you know we don't have dealings with the samaritans so they bypassed samaria hundred twenty eight kilometers now they're in jerusalem and probably the family would have gone up to jerusalem and returned uh, in a caravan long line of people, family and friends, traveling together for safety reasons because, you know, there's bandits everywhere. And um, the women would have gone at the front of the caravan and the men would have been at the back of the caravan. And that's probably what happened. That's how they lost track of him because, you know, the mother thinks that he's with the dad and the dad thinks he's with the mother. And maybe they both think he's with and so-and-so. And so... After a day, they realize that, where is he? And then they look, and then eventually they have to travel back, and it takes some time, and then eventually they find him in the temple, as you well know. And they say to him, why have you treated us this way? And he says to them, don't you know, I have to be about my father's business. Verse 49. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, literally, uh, that means I must be about my father's things or about the things of my father. It's good to translate it, I must be in my father's house. The idea also, of course, is that I must be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. Now, why does Luke tell us this? Why does he tell us this story? You know, sometimes people tell you stories and you think to yourself, I don't know why you're telling me this. I don't get it. So why is Luke telling us this? Well, he's telling us so that we might realize two things about the Lord Jesus. One, that he knew who he was. And two that he knew why he was here. He knew who he was. I must be about my father's business. Later, he would talk to Mary and he'd say, I'm going to my father and your father. Even though you and I as Christians, we can call God our father. Thank God for that. But he's not our father in exactly, precisely the same way as he is the father of Jesus. I go to... My father and your father. He has a unique relationship with God. And by unique, I mean unique. There are no degrees of unique. This is, well, he's the the one and only son. He's the son par excellence. He's the son, and there's nobody else like him. He has a unique relationship with the father. And... He not only knows that but he also knows why he's here. From the earliest days he knows who he is and he knows why he's here. You ask a 12-year-old boy what he wants to do with his life. I had occasion to do that because I when I taught high school I used to for a little while I was a guidance counselor mostly because no one else wanted to do it, so it fell to me. And so I was a guidance counsellor, and I had many occasions to ask 12-year-old boys, you oh, what do you want to do with your life? Because you're going to have to choose courses. And so what do you, what do you want to do with your life? And they'd say, well, I want to play floor hockey at lunch. Okay, so after lunch, what do you want to do after lunch? They're not thinking about that. They're not thinking about, what purpose do I have in life? Why do I exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? They're not thinking about these things. Jesus is. At 12, mind you, I'm here To be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. There's a must in Jesus' life. When you read the Gospels, there's a must that is always driving him. He's come to fulfill God's purposes and God's will. You find these verses I must preach, I must suffer. He must be on his way, he says. I must stay at the house of Zacchaeus. I must be delivered. I must suffer and enter into my glory. I must fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies. These things must happen. There's something driving Jesus, and you see it in the earliest days. I must be about my father's business. That's his purpose. And sometimes you talk not to 12-year-olds, But sometimes you talk to adults about purpose and about life and what it's all about and why they're here and what their life's purpose is. They don't know. And they struggle with that. They struggle to understand and to find out. There's a man by the name of Van Morrison. I guess he's getting long in the tooth now, but he's a singer-songwriter. And he has a song that says, what am I living for? If not for you, ah, you listen to that, oh, boy, that's romantic. He's talking to this woman. He says, "Oh, what am I living for?" If not for you, life. Oh, you young ladies grow up, and your boyfriend says, "Oh, I'm living for you," and you dump him, and you run for the hills. You don't want anyone like that. He's got major problems. for one person that's terrible no, Jesus lives for God so do you and I if we're Christians worth our salt live for God Jesus' purpose over his whole life you put this come to do the will of my father I must be about my father's business And at the end of his life, in John 17, when he's praying to the Father, he says, I have glorified you on earth and have accomplished the purpose you gave me to do. Now, the application of this is, if you're a Christian, you have the same grand purpose. You're not here to do a redemptive work like Jesus. No, no. That's already done. Nothing else needs to be done. But you're here... To live for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's your purpose. That's the grand statement that needs to be placed in a banner over your life. Your purpose is to live for God's glory. Your purpose is to magnify the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in all you are and in everything you do. That's why you're here. That's the great goal of your life and the grand purpose of your existence. And you can do it even when you're weak. You can glorify God even in your weakness. Remember 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is so weak, he's got a thorn in the flesh, but grace will be given to him so that in the midst of his weakness, he can glorify God. You can glorify God in your weakness, and you can glorify God even in your dying. You read John 21 Peter is talking to the Lord Jesus, and Jesus tells him, this is how you're going to die. This is how you're going to glorify God in your dying, how you end your life, how you finish. That's a way in which you glorify God, and you want to finish well, and you want to die well. Wesley said, our our people die well. We want to die well. We want to live and die in such a way as glorifies our God. Because that's the purpose for our existence. You do not exist for money. You don't exist to achieve. You don't exist to get rich. You don't exist to build an empire. You don't even exist to be happy. What's your goal in life? I just want to be happy. Have a little place. Look out on on a little lake. Have a little boat. Just be be happy. (laughs) Is that why you exist? No, it's not. You exist to glorify God. And if to glorify God means you got to suffer, let us suffer. That's your purpose. And if you're not a Christian, you've been living for yourself. You've been living for purposes other than God's. You've been living for some reason, some purpose of your own concoction you come up with it in your head and now this is why you're living. God says, no, no, you were made to know me and to glorify me. That's why you exist. That's why you were made. That's why God created you. You were made for him. You weren't made for yourself. You weren't made to go and do everything you want in this world. You weren't made to go and, you know, live with gusto. And enjoy all the good things the world. That's, that's not why you've been made. You've been made to know God. That's the great purpose of your existence. And to glorify him in everything you are and do. And until you come to him. You'll never fulfill the purpose for which you exist. And you'll never be happy. You will Until you find your rest in God. You will have no rest at all. To paraphrase Augustine. Young children, you listen to me. The reason you exist is so that you might know God. And that's the best thing in the world. That's the thing that makes you most happy in the world. And maybe you can't imagine that, but that's, that's the gospel truth. That's the thing that makes you happy. To know God and glorify Him. And only Jesus can help you to know God. That's why you have to become a Christian. That's why you have to believe the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, I got to... Oh, I hate time constraints. Don't you hate time constraints sometimes? Just hate it. Anyway, I've got two points. I'll very quickly tell you my last one, though it pains me. The last thing is Jesus. He's our example. He's our example. He's first our Savior and then our example. Don't go away from your thinking, Jesus is our example, so I got to try and be good so that I go to heaven. That's a lie. And don't go away thinking I said that, because that would be a lie. I didn't say that. He's first your Savior. Then he can be your example. You don't need an example first. You need a savior first. So you need to become a Christian. But if you're a Christian, then you have an example to follow. And in, we, in 1 Peter 2.21, it says, "For this, uh, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So now you're a Christian. Okay. Salvation's been settled. Forgiveness has been accomplished and applied to you. Now you're a Christian. You're going to heaven. Now you follow the example of Jesus. So he's an example to children, and he's an example to Christians, and then we'll stop. So he's an example to children. Jesus is an example to Christian children. How do we know that? Well, look at look at this. In verse... Um, 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus is an example to us, the Bible says. He's an example of what? He's an example to children of obedience. Do you think that Jesus knew more than his parents? Yes, he did. He knew more. He understood things better than they did. That's why he said to them earlier, don't you understand I need to be about my father's business? But then it says he went, and he was obedient to them. And I was a child, so I know what you think. And I know that sometimes you think, yeah, I know I don't want to obey. Because they don't get it. They don't understand. I know they said this, but uh, they just don't understand Well, who cares? The Bible doesn't say obey your parents when they get you. Obey your parents when they do what, you know, they tell you to do what you want to do. Obey your parents because that's right. Obey your parents because I said that to you, says God. Obey your parents because I command you to obey your parents. Lord Jesus is our example. So he went and he submitted to them. Jesus obeyed his mom and dad. Yeah, well, you should too. Secondly, he's an example to you and me, Christian. He's an example to you and me. And I've already emphasized this, but here's the, just one more hit of the nail. He's an example to you. So the question is, are you about your father's business? Are you? Is that what you're doing? Is that what your life's about? Now be honest before God. It's this what I want to do? I must be about my father's business in, in every area of my life. There's no there's no compartment where I close myself off to him and say, now there I'll be about my business, and here I'll be about your business. No. It all the doors are open. Everything is open before the Lord, and, and you say, Here, in every area, my leisure, my reading, my work my family every single solitary area I must be about my father's business in all of them he reigns and he rules and he's my lord so yeah, can you say this now you say this honestly I must be about my father's business just like he was Let me follow his example in this. I've come to do your will, oh God. He enters into the world and he says, now this is it, this is why I've come. I've come to do your will, oh God. And when you get up in the morning, you can say that, you can say, this day, I enter into this day, I get up out of my bed and I I walk purposefully into this day. To do your will, O God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you that we are privileged to do this. We're grateful to you that our Savior has so rescued us and forgiven us and is transforming us so that we can live for your glory and be about your business even as he was. We thank you today for the the Savior. We pray for those who don't yet know him and pray that you'll call them to him. And we thank you that we who do know him may, by your grace, live for him. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll sing in closing.